Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest is Professor Robin Atfield. Professor Atfield is an Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and also of the Sustainable Places Research Institute. He taught and searched areas of philosophy, including ethics, philosophy of religion, history of philosophy, and environmental philosophy from 1968 to 2009, and continues to work in these fields. He is the author or editor of 15 books and over 250 articles and chapters, His latest books include Environmental Ethics, A Very Short Introduction, and Environmental Thought, A Short History. We are very privileged to have him with us here today. Welcome, Professor Atfield, to the Sustainability and You podcast Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you very much. We thought it would be great to start with looking at the background to environmental ethics. The reason being that, you know, for whatever reason we make our decisions in this field, it will inform the development of policy and indeed informed corporate and financial decision making. So we thought a good place to start would be to ask you, if you could, to define the difference in thinking between environmental ethics and ethics or morality as traditionally understood. And if we could pull in issues around values as well and what difference they make to this thinking as well, let's touch upon that. Very good. Well, um, morality has traditionally understood uh, concerns what we ought to do, morally speaking, and that has centrally, though not exclusively, concerned human well-being and how to promote it, not, not exhaustively any more than exclusively, but um, uh, because it, it was often concerned with the, the well-being of people around here and the people who are either alive are alive now or will be soon. But um, environmental ethics, when it came in, questioned that and suggested, first of all, that we ought to uh, take into account uh, the people of the foreseeable future, but also that we ought to take into account non-human creatures, um, the different beings with which we share our planet, and there may be some, of course, on some other planets too. And um, in particular, this uh, started up in the early 1970s when an Australian called Richard Routley presented a paper at a um, World Congress and um, presented a thought experiment 
So we imagine that there's just one person left because there's been a nuclear war which has killed the others. So this is the last man standing. This is, this is the last man standing. Yeah. Um, he's only just standing because he hasn't got very long to live. But <laughs> anyway, he's oh, nevertheless, because he is standing, he sets about uh, ha- hacking down some adjacent trees. Most people, th- um, if asked whether, he, whether this is a bad thing to do, will say, yes, he, he's wrong to do that. But it can't be for the sake of human beings because there aren't any left. And it, um, it and it doesn't it, it doesn't benefit him. So most people hold that uh, there is something else at stake, and that and, and that he shouldn't be doing it for, for whatever that that reason is. The the message of this, which I think Richard Routley meant us to take away, uh, is that um, there is actually value in the flourishing of the trees and the other creatures of the shall we say forest in which he may have been located, and and not only in human well-being. Now that's not the whole of environmental ethics, and it's not the whole of what Richard Routley was saying, but it does set the scene quite well. And um, from from then on, people began uh, discussing just what is the the scope of um, of environmental ethics. I, sh- I should, I think, also say that at the same period, people another Australian uh, emphasised this called John Passmore em- emphasised that that in fact uh, human beings are in any case not I- not immune, not not um, not infinite or in- eternal but uh, are very much subject to and dependent on the natural world around them and the implications of that needed to be thought through as well now i wonder if i've answered yeah i don't think i've answered the bit that you said about value so let's let's just stress that bit that the suggestion was that uh, not only is human well-being of independent value non-derivative value or in the terminology intrinsic value but uh, also that of uh, non-human animals, but that would leave out uh, a good deal of, the, of other creatures. And uh, so the suggestion was that other living beings, or rather the flourishing of other living beings, has this sort of value as well. And um, we should take accordingly take them into account. And not only the ones that exist now, but the ones that we can foresee. So we have this sort of concept that, you know, Routley has espoused, and I think subsequent philosophers like Ralston and Goodpaster, which is the biocentric view that that all living organisms can have and do have an, an intrinsic value in themselves. That's right. And um, when we look at that and the landscape for recognition of all things that have intrinsic value, how do we move from that to what is valuable because let's take the last man standing example Um, we can recognize that biomatter has or bioorganisms have intrinsic value in and of themselves but it doesn't stop us from eating plants Uh, that's that's right and and uh, the kenneth goodpaster whom you mentioned pointed pointed that out what is valuable is what there is reason to value and so um, if we accept that, that these things actually supply independent reasons for action of some kind, such as protection, then that begins to change um, how we should behave towards them. Well, there are many people who I think mistakenly hold that values are simply what, what people value, what is valued. Um, in fact, there is always this aspect of, of supplying reasons for action which uh, put put together lead to what we ought to do or what there is a, a, a stronger reason to do. Quite often there will be 
pulls drives in different directions but uh, we can de derive from all that what what we actually ought to do by way of either individual actions as individuals or as policy on the part of corporations and governments and does this give us the ability to objectively obsess what is of value so the thought process there would seem to imply that we apply reason to ascribe value to things that have value but it feels that there's an element of subjectivity to that that there's an individual thought process that my thought process could be different from Tilly's and yours so in arriving at a consensus of what is valuable that could inform decision making how do we create communal thoughts there I'm not going to try to claim that it's um, a straightforward matter of, of of getting it right about what we ought to do most of the time. Most most of the time, our reasoning will be based on limited information and um, and and possibly questionable perspectives, where what is more immediate is mistaken for 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 what is more important and more more valuable, or supplying a stronger reason for action. But I do think that in principle. Uh, we can at, at least sometimes work out what we ought to do and, and that when we can't, it's partly due to lack of information or confusion or cross-purposes. So we we don't need to infer from the fact that we um, have lots and lots of debates about it uh, that there is no truth of the matter. So I, I, I want to maintain, I suppose economics also assumes this, that actually we can arrive at a, at a conclusion about what it's best to do on, on balance, taking all things into consideration. And I think actually that was also part of Good Pastor's reply to the problem you mentioned earlier, because uh, the fact that, for instance, plants are valuable doesn't, act, uh, doesn't in fact mean that um, it, there might not be other things which are also valuable, which might yeah. generate reason to, to, as you say, eat them. So that he, he seemed to introduce that concept of something may have uh, intrinsic value, but not everything has the same sort of moral significance. That's right. Yes, I and and good pastors said 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 that before me. So um, there there can be d degrees of of value, which is um, not surprising if we if we consider things in human life that we tr treat to be valuable. So we so we may enjoy listening to a particular tune, or, um, but but this doesn't count for very much in in comparison with. Uh, various long-term goods that may contribute to our long-term well-being. Yes, and it, so I think you know if we if we reduce it to our predictable needs in the world, whether it's based uh, on the air that we breathe or the food that we eat, whether that's animals or plants, it's easy, isn't it? To, it's easier to identify those things that either have intrinsic value or instrumental value to us because they satisfy our needs. So our reasoning would help us develop policies and decision-making that preserve and protect those things. I, I go along with that. Um, a great deal will hinge on our needs and our needs and what we need to flourish or have well-being. But of course, not everything that is valuable will actually turn on on our own well-being, and we'll have to just, I think, have to accept the possibility that there are things that, that matter but uh, are not dependent on human interests. And I think that's one of the things which 
many environmental ethicists have been stressing. I quite agree with you in, in your, the role you give to reason. Yeah, and and I I guess it forces us also to think about the outcomes of our decisions because we can re- recognize the inputs to our decision making process, which may be the recognition of what is intrinsically valuable, exercise what we think is good reason to preserve that thing of value, but we would have to understand what the consequences of our decisions are as well to mm. properly assess that in a very rounded way. You know, what, what are the objectives? Very much so. Uh, and uh, not only the, the objectives, but what actually happens. And that, uh, and that over a, a wide swathe of space and a, a, and a long span of time. And that presumably this is all proportional as well. So like consumption and inadvertently destruction to a certain extent is replaceable so like if we're eating some plants for example they will automatically sort of regrow some faster than others in a way that if you killed one animal or one human it's not so easily replaced but then obviously mass consumption creates a bigger issue and I guess this is the problem is that mass consumption has become such a global and particularly involved in environmental problem because where do you draw the line and i guess you know this is where the line has to be redrawn yes i guess that's right and we do have to question our consumption and uh, and work out not not only the actual consequences but the the typical consequences and the consequences of large numbers of people doing the same thing um in the same world which leads us to question things like diet and and uh, travel and um, transport all sorts of other matters where people on the whole t- tend to act together. But also living, I guess, you know, destruction of agriculture in order to provide housing, for example. Exactly, yes, yes. So in summary, we seem to sort of moved away from that anthropocentric view of the world that Aristotle and Passmore may have espoused to more of a biocentric view that places value on all living organisms. Well, we said, yeah. In in our conversation, we've we've moved away from from that the um a, a characteristic anthropocentrism to to a more biocentric view. I'm not too sure that it that it's fair to either Aristotle or to Passmore to ascribe anthropocentrism to them. There's a debate about whether whether Aristotle meant that. Uh, in some places, he actually just says it. In other places, he um, writes as if it can't be true, and he's and, and uh, very very interested in, in animals. As for Passmore, you'd think for half the time that he was anthropocentric, but then he infe- emphasizes the rise of compassion for non-human animals and uh, the, the history of the RSPCA and all, all kinds of things of that kind. So um, he he was not altogether anthropocentric either, but I think you're you're basically right that there has that environmental ethics uh, stresses the value to be found in non-human lives and so yes we have moved away in that sort of manner and then i think and thank you for that clarification because it also then leads us in summary form to say well in moving to in the recognition of value of all living things uh, or non-human things then we can um, inform our decision making through reason to arrive at what is valuable if we think about that backdrop to decision making, 
How do you think on a global level in the development of policy, governmental policy, uh, investment theses and corporate strategies, this type of thinking and understanding of what is of value and valuable <laughs> can form a backdrop to the, the development of those policies or, or corporate strategies? Um, well, um, you ask about policy development and uh so this brings in the policies of both corporations and countries. And one of the important dis discoveries, really, um, not confined to environmental ethicists, but shared by them, is that the practices we uh, support should be, if possible, sustainable so that future generations can uh, benefit from the same things, as the same goods as earlier generations. And, and sustainable development um, well, it brings in a great deal about what is meant by de by developments, and and that's uh, if you think about unsatisfied human needs, there's clearly a lot of scope for development in into systems which which can then be sustainable. Uh, so that is part of I think part of the answer to what you were saying: um, sustainable practices, investment um, stances could be related to that uh, because uh, it is. It is possible to invest in policies that that are actually sustainable rather than uh, short-lived and likely likely to leave a dis disused plant and um, great great deal of, of waste products which we cannot recycle. Investment in sustainable practices is one of the policies. Well, I suppose another sort of policy will be preservation. There will be. As um, Descoptor and the Descoptor report says, a, a, an important place for having, for example, marine reserves, uh, where, where instead of, uh, of, tr of trying to um, generate wealth from this region, it is uh, left to itself so species are able to continue in, in, in their own sustainable manner. You also, um, I think, talked about corporate strategies. And uh, I think that brings in some of the emphases um, about environmental social governance uh, strategies, which um, takes into account both the needs of the natural world, but also the, um, the, the human values, which have sometimes been omitted in the um, corporate strategies and governance strategies, which take into account, for example, the good of, of employees and um other stakeholders. So I think all all of those uh, come in as well because um, and there's nothing to prevent environmental ethicists agreeing with that because they don't have to uh, give up their interest in uh, human well-being when they take into account the well-being of other species as well. Indeed and when we think about these strategies whether it's from that policy perspective, investment theses, corporate strategies, we think about long-term value creation within this field sometimes it's difficult for humans to think beyond their own time horizons the, the the individual life cycle let alone shorter life cycles the business or credit life cycle why do you think business leaders should look to longer term time horizons from an environmental ethical perspective addison wrote a that, that um, why should we care about the future? They've never done anything for us. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that has uh, widely been countered by people pointing out that the, the young people of a uh, hundred years hence will will have uh, 
similar needs to those of the present and come to that. The old people of 100 years hence will, quite quite apart from us wanting to have successors to whom we hand on the things that we do and enjoy and appreciate, where where there are needs comparable to our own, there is uh, it's entirely arbitrary to rule them out because either they're a long way away or they're a long, uh, at, at a distant, long distance away in time. Why should business do it? Well, it will not always be profitable to, because I suppose the horizons of what to to consider what is profitable will will have some limits to them but the ethical considerations are strong and um have actually long been recognized uh it's just that it that it's in the modern period that we've actually noticed that we can do things for future generations that we can actually make a difference it, it was it was really only in the enlightenment period that we that we noticed that uh, we that we can in the present to some degree, change the course of history. Various Enlightenment philosophers came to came to almost deify posterity and and, and see that posterity may judge us, and so we better put in a, a good show in order to live up to their standards. Perhaps the 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 point is that um, we can make a difference to to people whose lives are foreseeable. There mm-hmm. there could be lives there could be human lives in a million years, but we can't make a very great deal of difference to uh, generations that far ahead, but uh, if if you think of uh, say the, the next seven hundred years, um, then we can make a very great difference to whether they will have a livable climate and a livable environment. And uh, that that being the case, that that is something where there are uh, the the intrinsic value of their well-being of those foreseeable people comes into the picture. So we ought to take it into account. And presumably there's something about the predictability of outcomes there that's inherent in our decision-making. We talked earlier about applying reason to the things that we value. So if we understand those outcomes, i.e. they're foreseeable, there's even more of a moral moral imperative to draw that into our decision-making today. Yes, that's that, that's right. It's it's an it's an, it's an imperative. That is, it's a strong reason why we should. I don't think it's inherent that we do, but uh, but but uh, for, for the foresight makes a big a great deal of difference. You, you talked about the the line of sight to outcomes there, um, and when we talk about foreseeability, it's almost you know an intergenerational line of sight. Mm-hmm. So Tilly here may look to her children, possibly grandchildren, when she's thinking about decisions that she's making. Do you think that there's, you know, a moral imperative to look beyond that time horizon when it starts to become more unpredictable what the world will look like in that many years' time, or technology may have moved on so significantly as to create an environment of adaption to environmental changes I, I i see that there's a there's a problem because we we can't foresee the tastes of people say 150 years hence but we can very largely grasp what their needs will be including for a, a non-toxic environment if if we if we focus on on the on the predictable needs of people then there is every case for taking them into account uh, as a matter of fact, there's been some social science work done recently about whether people do recognise the importance of their grandchildren's generation 
And uh, it turns out it depends on how you, how you ask the question. So if you ask the question in impersonal terms, how much would you spend on saving lives of 100 years' time? People quite often rate that not very highly. But if you ask questions about your grandchildren's generation, people will quite frequently say, yes, it's just as important as our own. It's personalising the, the question, isn't it? And making it yes. very real then to the the audience that is then having to, to contemplate it and... I think that's it's sort of understandable, although yeah. the question's still the same question. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it's very interesting in terms of the development of strategies and then the language that you're using to bring them to life, actually. If we think about how people make decisions and so their individual motivations and intentions in the development of personal action or even corporate action what what value do you think virtuous ethics and and character and traits play in the development of those things well right i want to um, divide that up um virtues and character are extremely important for one thing for us to be able to cooperate with others we we need to know a great deal about their character and whether we can trust them and rely on them and uh, there are all kinds of environmental virtues, really, which might include abs- abstaining from luxury or temperance, but it might uh, also in- include dependability and loyalty. So there are all kind. Of, there's a, there's a huge role for virtues. What that doesn't mean is that virtue ethics, which is a movement within uh, moral philosophy, uh, is is therefore right. That tells us or claims to tell us that what the virtuous person would do is right. And that strikes me as dangerous, since the virtuous person might have been brought up um, in a way that doesn't actually qualify them to to, to cope with newly introduced technology, and um, with uh, and and risks them making significant blunders while having a to- totally virtuous set of dispositions. So there could be unintended consequences. Exactly. Yes. 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 So I'm so uh, so I have reservations about virtue ethics, but I do see. What um, philosopher called Dale Jameson says is that if you're concerned about uh, good outcomes, um, it's probably better to try to foster good traits of character in people than to get them to reflect on all, each of the individual decisions that, that uh, need to be made anew each time. But that's also a case for having some um, social rules like, like keeping promises. So it shows there is a, there's a crucial place for, for the virtues. And um, um, environmental ethics can entertain and accept that without it making the virtue ethicists to, to, to have the last word. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there we seem to have a, a blend of stances, don't we? That the virtue has its place in the decision-making process, but it's really important to be more in control of the consequences of our decisions and not just let virtue play itself out perhaps to unintended consequences. We need to think about the consequences. Um, and Yes, it is. I, I'm, I think all that's co- uh, co- consistent with a, a, a certain kind of consequentialism um, without requiring a, a, a blend of theories. But, it, but, but uh, when we come to the factors that are often contrasted, such as virtues and foresight and so on, uh, then I agree we, we need all those emphases. So I can see how in the development, let's say, of corporate strategy, the definition of corporate 
purpose underpinned by values can be very generously informed by some of this environmental ethical history uh, and individuals finding touch points within it that help them develop the framework for their corporate purpose and their corporate strategies. I quite like that link up between this broader concept of ethics and the development of corporate purpose. So that's something for us and our audience I guess, to think about it as, as they move forward. So Tilly, I'd like to pull you in, if I may, just to maybe ask a question. And I know you had one around future generations as well. Uh, I don't know if Professor Atfield has answered that question already because he's given some answers to future generation thinking. But He has, but you kind of were touching on it, actually, uh, Josephine, in your last point about... Um, the sort of linkage between kind of ethics and corporate strategy. And I was thinking, as you were saying it, how there needs to be quite a lot of convincing in that area because there's such a kind of short-term capitalist focus uh, a lot of the time, which kind of leads to, or sort of it's a perfect breeding ground for a kind of dissociation of those mm, yes. um, two yes. things. And, um, and so I think just off of the back of that, um, I wonder if you, uh, Professor Atfield, have any insight or advice for what uh, kind of how to incite leadership in that space because we touched on earlier about you know um what's our responsibility to the future generations those who are not yet born um and we know about their basic needs but how much of our time and energy needs to be put towards planning for them and laying a good environment for them and I wonder, you know, what from from your massive amount of knowledge um, and experience in the in the space, what what do you see needs to be done in order to kind of alter that leadership? Right. Um, so, well, so, so, several issues there. One of the problems is is the dissociation or alienation that you mentioned of um, decision makers from the the impacts that they have and. Uh, and the, the far-flung consequences that their decisions involve, mm. uh, and I, th- I think one of the um, remedies for that, uh, and it's something that uh, Das Gupta says in his review as well, um, is is the, the the importance of every child across the world being educated in natural history. Yeah. Um, now, man, many of us have had a perfunctory only education in natural history. Uh, some of us were fortunate enough to spend uh, a lot of our spare time looking around the countryside, but many people don't and can't. So that does seem to be, well, actually a contribution to human well-being in any case, but also a, um, a, a right and a way that that would actually um, change the perspective of, of a great many people. Now, that's not enough to resolve problems of leadership, which is what you were also raising. Mm. Um, but I suppose, um, I suppose, lead, what what leadership should go with is an, an appreciation of of the uh, of the overall context in in which we operate, in, including the vulnerability of the natural world and the importance of preserving it at the same time as uh, as generating um, wealth for humanity. So, so I suppose what what leadership should should go with is a, a, a both a broad and a deep view 
of the context in which we find ourselves and the difference that we can make. And then the, the rest is a matter of spelling that out in, in detail. But I, there will be um, many people in the past who, on the basis of uh, very, very specialists and, and similarly limited education, <laughs> were, were trying to um, decide what, what should be done. I mean, my, for instance, my, my late father-in-law, who was an Indian, used to point out that uh, people who'd had my sort of education might in their 20s have been sent off to actually make life and death decisions as a district commissioner in India. You want to feel great pity for the Indians who, who were going to be subject to, to such ill-prepared decision makers. <laughs> if, if, we, if we are going to trust great decision-making powers to individuals, they ought to, be, they ought to think about some of the matters that we've been discussing in the last few minutes. We've been talking about taking into account the future and at one point we did we, we saw that at least there's quite a case for saying that our grandchildren's generation will have similar needs to our own the approach which uh the, the same Dasgupta review which i've been mentioning from time to time takes uh is that actually it's okay to discount future interests by a certain percentage yes. and uh, that actually has the effect that uh while well, the interests of 10 or 20 years hence get some amount of look-in, the interests of uh, 30 years hence get a fairly small look-in, and the interests of 50 years hence get minimal look-in, look and the interests of, of 100 years hence get, get virtually no look-in. Inevitably, alloc- resource gets allocated in line with those discount factors. That, that's right. And I think one of the things we need to encourage people to do is to be sceptical about conventional discounting there is some basis for discounting where there's genuine uncertainty but there's no no good reason for spreading that to all decisions about the future in many of which we can foresee what in present impacts will be so i think the um well, while i have a whole lot of um reservations about talk of natural capital part of the definition of, of that it does involve values being discounted in that sort of way and uh, we, we, we really ought to be more sceptical um, about that. Fortunately, Professor Dasgupta um, writes as if um, he hadn't written all that and does actually say that we should, for example, try to prevent extinctions through having marine reserves, etc. So, um, and, and I think many, many people actually, even if they agree with discounting, then forget about that when they come to practical decisions. I think we ought to be um, more consistent, if possible, and try to um, qualify the um, the extent by which we discount these decisions, which uh, would make no sense if we just are planning a railway system, but make even less sense when we're considering species. I completely agree. Mm. And it, it, it's really placing equal value then, isn't it, of the, the lives of tomorrow that aren't yet here. So I think, I think that's a very powerful call to action and one actually that will resonate very deeply with Tilly and I um, around the power of education yeah and actually I really like the terminology that you used around how we all can individually make a difference as well but properly informed and maybe that's a very good place for us to to round off today Um, and with that Professor Atfield I'd really like to thank you for your time 
uh, and and your insights and all of the knowledge that you've brought to bear in a very short space of time, I, I might add, uh, within within this podcast. Thank you very much indeed.